We are in the midst of our uh, mission conference, second week, and we are blessed this morning to have with us uh, Mark and Jody Bosher. I think, Mark, you're, you're the one who's going to be doing the speaking, right? All right. Jody gives a thumbs up. Yep, this morning it's Mark. So, And uh, their children, Addison, um, Barrett, and Emerson as well, and a uh, rich blessing um, to have you with us this morning, uh, join a privilege. So uh, would you just give a warm welcome to Mark Bosher? Yes. Okay. Good morning, Elvin. So, in February of this last year, Jody and I and some of our teammates put on a medical clinic in a little village in the north of Paraguay called Cavaju Paso. So we loaded up all of the gear into our vehicles and we drove into the village, and um, and we started. Doing the thing. There was a long line of people already. We had let them know ahead of time that we were coming. And during the course of the morning, as we were proceeding with the examinations, I noticed that there was an older gentleman kind of off to the side. Now, he was um, oh, old for there, I would say, in his 60s. Not so very old for here. <laughs> Younger every day for me. <laughs> and, uh, and he's pretty wiry, tall for that tribe, weathered, I would say, um, and he came up to me. Now, I know him. He's a friend of mine named Clemente. And he said, um, hey, Mark, my son is really sick. Um, he's too sick to come to the clinic. Would you be willing to come to my house and see him? Um, so what I know about Clemente is that he's the village witch doctor. He's the shaman. So this was a big moment. So, of course, we said, yeah, we, we've got to finish up what we're doing here, but, but we'll be done um, and we'll come as soon as we can. And so... We, we saw the rest of the patients. There was about 50 patients that day. And when we were done seeing the patients, we loaded everything into the Land Cruiser and we headed down the road in Cavaju Paso, this kind of dusty um, one-lane road, um, the only road in Cavaju Paso. And we kept going until we got to where he lives, which is just really a turnoff into the jungle. And it kind of opens up a little bit. And we pushed the nose of the Land Cruiser in there and we drove as far as we could until we couldn't, and then Samuel and I got out and walked forward a little bit, and we entered into this clearing, which is where he's built his house. Um, and so we got out there, and we asked, where's Javier? And he kind of pointed back to this building. So I want you to picture this building is, is mud, built with mud and sticks, and it's got no windows in it. It's got one handmade wooden door in the front. And so Samuel entered in, and he found Javier. And Javier at that point was on a mattress in the corner of this of this little hut on this dirt floor. And what I know now that I didn't know then is that Javier had been to the hospital already three times and had been turned away. Um, and it's an hour walk one way every time. And after the last trip, he just didn't have it in him anymore. So I believe Javier was on the mattress on that day in this room just waiting for the end to come. There was no hope for him. So Samuel coaxed him out. And we brought him out and we put him into this rickety chair in the middle of the clearing. And, um, and Samuel started to do what he does. So he listened to his heart and his lungs and he took his pulse. Um, and then he pulled me aside and he said, hey, Mark, there's not anything else we're going to be able to do for him today. I don't know for sure, but I think what he's got is really advanced tuberculosis. And that's not something that we can treat here. So we went back and passed that news on to Clemente and to Javier. And then asked if we could pray for Javier. And so we laid our hands on him and prayed that the Lord would heal him, would open a way for him to be made whole again. Um, and it was 
It was this really precious moment in the middle of this clearing in the jungle in the witch doctor's village. So my question for you today is, how does a McBain boy that's lived in Iowa for 20 years in his family end up praying in the witch doctor's clearing in the middle of Paraguay? Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about, um, kind of the journey that we've been on to get to that point, what God is doing in Cabo Paso, and what comes next for us. And you guys have heard a lot of that story already when we, when we asked you to come along on this journey with us. And so we're not going to go through all of the backstory of how God called us out of our life as an attorney and what we had in Iowa and dropped us there. Um, and we're going to talk about, about, um, about what's been going on since. So by way of reference, this is Paraguay. Brazil is to the north. Bolivia to the west. Argentina wraps around it. And if you look, um, there's kind of an elbow on the western side there where the river wraps around. Uh, and that's where Asuncion is. So our first year in the field, after we finished all our training um, with SIM, was to land in Asuncion and to start a year of Spanish language school. Uh, there are about 7 million people in Paraguay, and about uh, over 90% of them live on the eastern third of that country. And of those 7 million, about 5 million people live in Asuncion. So in reflection, Jody and I think the Lord is really gentle with us. He didn't just take us from where we were at and dump us into the middle of the jungle. Our first step was, was to Asuncion, which is a very much a third world place. But, um, but the bigger transition for us was that there's 5 million people there, which is a long way from McBain. So, uh, so our life there looked like our kids going to school every day. Um, we found an English-speaking school for them, which is a real blessing. They could make some friends. There was still Spanish in between classes and on the playground, um, but it was a good experience for them. And for Jody and I, it was Spanish school um, all day, every day. Uh, in the morning in class, this is one of our teachers, Juanjo. This guy speaks absolutely perfect English, and we had no idea until the last day of class. He let us struggle along in Spanish for a full year. <laughs> um, uh, so it was... Class, class, and then after class, into the market to just beat people up with bad Spanish as much as we could until they just walked away from us. And we just kept at it and kept at it. Um, and then when that year was done and we were competent in Spanish, we moved on to our next stop, which was about two hours outside of Asuncion in the countryside. There's a little town called Paraguari. And outside of Paraguari, there's a smaller town called Escobar. And we lived on a little dirt path outside of Escobar in another little, they call it a compañía, called Bopicua. So Bopiqua is Guarani, Bopi is bat, and Qua is hole. So the bat cave basically is where we lived for the better part of a year. And we found the, the people of Paraguay in the countryside to be unbelievably kind and patient with us. Guarani is not related to Spanish at all. It's a completely indigenous language. But 90% of the people of Paraguay speak it. It's what they speak when they're at home. And so if you're going to talk to somebody about Jesus, you need to talk to them in the language they speak in their homes. The who, who do they talk about? Uh, what language do they use when they talk to their mom? That's the language you want to use. So it was an important year for us. Um, our kids went to Paraguayan school during the day, which was an eye-opening experience, I think. You have to ask Barrett some, sometime. I believe his first day of class, he had a fist fight, if I remember right, in the classroom. So uh, he, not Barrett. Other Paraguayans were in a fist fight in his classroom, just to clarify, although he would have won. No. <laughs> so... Um, they went to Paraguayan school. We had a homeschool teacher come down that was going to homeschool our kids. And one of the first kind of blows that we took as a setback was that that homeschool teacher, after a couple of months, went back to the States, which left Jody and I in the spot of homeschooling our kids full-time while we learned Guarani full-time, which was doable, 
but hard. Um, you'll see this picture. This track is the track up the side of the mountain to the um, school where our teacher taught us Guadagnia every day. For the first couple months, we drove up that with our Land Cruiser, and then it was just beating our car up. And so we started parking at the bottom of the hill and walking up. It was good and rich time. That's our class that we were with, two other couples, one from Australia and one from Minnesota. Um, and it was much like it was in Spanish school. It was um, every day, Guarani class, and then you would leave Guarani class and you would go home and talk to your neighbors until they just walked away from you because they couldn't take your bad Guarani anymore. <laughs> and that over and over and over again, kind of uh, failing forward, I would say, until we had that language um, good enough to speak it. We made good friends with our neighbors. This is one of the na- our neighbors. He lived right across the street from us, across the little dirt road from us, Don Papi. Um, he became a really good friend, and we had really good memories there. Uh, so that was our second year. And then at the end of our second year, we began the process of scouting, trying to discern where the Lord would have us move for our, for our ministry proper. Um, and that was, that was an adventure. Um, there is a lot of countryside in, in Paraguay, and we felt called to the north um, along the border with Brazil. You can see Jody there working on her jungle cooking skills, getting ready to uh, cook a meal over the fire. If you want to build anything in the northern part of Paraguay um, among the indigenous, um, on the right there you can see that's, what you, um, that's how you get your lumber. They cut down a tree with a chainsaw, square it off. And that's, um, the other picture is on one of our scouting trips, Barrett and I camped out in the jungle, and Barrett got to taste alligator over the fire with a little bit of lemon. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very good. Um, so as a part of that experience, we were really blessed by a man named Pastor Cipriano. So he's an indigenous pastor that lives in the north part of Paraguay. And we went to him and said, listen, our hearts are not to come up here and plant a church. We want to disciple somebody. We want to find where the gospel has been proclaimed and there's somebody that is not supported that we can pour into so that they can plant a church and that the Lord can work around them. Um, and the answer he gave us was not what we were expecting. He said, then you need to go to, um, to the Blah. So there are 19 different tribes in Paraguay. And if you look at the kind of the social structure in Paraguay, you've got, I would say, wealthy people in Asuncion at the top in terms of kind of cultural power. Then you've got um, workaday people in Asuncion. And then you've got the people that live in the countryside outside, all Paraguayans. And then at the bottom of that, you've got the indigenous. And you've got 19 tribes. And at the bottom of the indigenous... You've got the blah. Um, they're difficult people to work with. They, they, um, they hold on to their traditions really tightly. When anybody comes close to them, they're very mobile. So they'll just kind of fade back into the jungle. And yet, Pastor Cipriano said, there is a, community, a group of 14 communities that share about 5,000 acres of forest. And the gospel has been proclaimed there. And there are a handful of believers. And there is nobody to work with them. And so we prayed over it um, and accepted that call. And so he took us out there and introduced us. Um, I went and visited with the chief and got permission to come in there. Um, and then we started discerning where we were going to live. You're not allowed to live in a village in Paraguay. You can live alongside a village. And so our plan was to live in pretty close proximity to this village of Cavaju Paso. Um, and then our change, our, our um, kind of the second um, gut punch came a little bit of a step back. Um, we had, I had been in particular, talking with a missionary who grew up in Paraguay who lived in this area named um, Wayne Goddard. And he was kind of our security consultant. There's a lot of narcotics trafficking that goes on across the border with Brazil. So it's not the safest part of Paraguay to live in. So I had been talking with him about how do I make sure we're safe up there? Where do I go? Where should I not go? What things that I need to make sure that I do? And about 30 days before we were ready to move north, Wayne was murdered in the middle of the night in his house. And so 
Um, so that um, caused us to just pause and take stock a little bit. SIM USA, SIM International spoke with us and said, um, we're not going to say that you can't go. We just think we need to pump the brakes a little bit and think about where you're going to live so you can be safe as a family. So that changed our focus a little bit. And we ended up looking at a town called Kuruguatu. And Kuruguatu is about an hour from Kabaju Paso. It's the last kind of commercial hub, about fifteen to 20,000 people, kind of a dusty little frontier town. And that's where we chose to live. So this is the house that we lived in in Kuruguatu. And because of that unique circumstance, the way that the, the rhythm of our ministry kind of um, grew was Jody was in this house with the kids homeschooling every day. And I would get in the Land Cruiser and drive an hour to the village, to Cavaju Paso, and spend time, um, spend time there. And so that was different than we expected. It was good, and I would say it was really hard. Um, it's a pretty isolated place. Um, the time in Cavaju Paso was a huge blessing. So um, village life is, as you might expect, fairly slow, and it starts early in the morning. This is the chief's wife, Nyao Henya cooking over a fire, which is um, the way everybody cooks. In the background, you can see the chief's house. And this is their little son um, who's, who um, just runs constantly, never walks anywhere. Anyways, um, we're new to all of this. So this is a learning experience. So I showed up on the first day and just, uh, I'd been invited by the chief to come. So I came and I sat down and I realized this was going to get really awkward really fast if I just sit down in the village and watch everybody do life every day. And so I asked the chief if I could... Um, if I could help work in the fields. And he said, yes. So this group of guys um, became that, kind of my guys. These are the guys that we worked with all the time in the fields. Um, the, the gentleman in the white shirt with a red hat is the chief, um, a really stern man, but I, somebody I really came to expect, invited me in as part of his family. And the gentleman in the blue shirt, two away from me. You can see also that the Lord distributed height a little differently in the world when he created people. <laughs> Uh, the Dutch have a little bit more of it than, they, than the Blah do. So the, the man in the blue shirt is Alcides. Um, Pastor Cipriano said in particular, you need to go work with Alcides. So about a year before we came, Alcides had accepted Christ um, and was excited about it and had nobody to walk with him. He had no Bible. All he knew was that there was a Savior that loved him and he was happy to talk to people about it. And so... Um, and so I spent a lot of time with Alcides, um, just pouring into him, living life with him, working with him. The house you see there is a pretty typical blah house built by my friend Placido, the guy in the very left in the white shirt with the light blue hat. That's his house. Those are a couple of his boys. Um, and, and this is what life in the field looked like. So if you're going um, to plant in Cavaju Paso, you clear cut a part of the forest and then you burn it off. And then you come back with a machete and you cut off all the small stuff and you put it into piles and burn it. And then here that day we were preparing to plant corn. They laughed at me a lot that day. They said my lines were boy haisha, which means snake-like. And they were right. <laughs> uh, so there, there, we were on that day clearing rows in order to come back and plant corn with hand planters. Um, one of the first lessons I learned um, was, was a, in retrospect fun, not so fun at the time, the chief had said, just bring your machete. You can go out to the fields to work. And so I showed up the next day with my Bible and my Guarani hymnal and my machete like a good missionary and followed him on a footpath to, the, to a forest, just a clearing just like this. And, and that day we were clearing out um, brush that was about as big as your thumb, cutting it all down to the machete. So about 6.30 in the morning, we started going and about, went at it till about 11.30. 
And by 1130, we were sitting down on a log, having some, some tete day, some Paraguayan cold tea. And my little uh, lawyer hand was a hot mess. <laughs> and, and a couple of these old, older gentlemen were sitting off to the side, kind of laughing at me, having a good chuckle. And one of them asked me in Guarani, uh, hey, Mark, did you sharpen your machete? No, I, don't, I bought it from the store. I thought that's the way it came. And that made them really laugh. I've been out there all morning with a completely dull blade with no edge on it at all. So, but then Don Benigno, one of the men there, um, just real quietly took out his hand file and took about 20 minutes and put a really nice edge on that machete. Um, and it was a good moment for me to be reminded that I'm not coming in with all the answers. I had a whole lot of learning to do, and I think it helped level the ground, and it was a, ended up being a real blessing. Um, all right, so when we left Javier, he, uh, we had prayed for him in the clearing outside of his dad's house. So I want to circle back and tell you about the rest of the story. So I drove back the next morning and I showed up again at, um, at his dad's house, at Clemente's house. Elcides, I picked him up on the way. He came with me and Elcides said, well, we're going to pray for him, Mark. And so we went in again and prayed for him with a lot of faith. And then Placido, his brother, came along. And he couldn't walk. So we picked him up and we put him into the back of the Land Cruiser. And we drove about three hours to a hospital, a Mennonite hospital. And they um, were pretty surprised to see me bring a Buddha into this very nice hospital facility. But they agreed to take an x-ray and they confirmed that it was, in fact, very advanced tuberculosis. And they said, we will not treat him here. And I believe that is a combination of the fact that he has Buddha and that it's an extremely infectious disease. And they're not equipped to have it there. So... So we drove him back to the house, and I said, hey, we're not giving up. We'll be back the next day. So Elcides and I drove back the next day and showed up and picked him up again, literally picked him up, put him into the back of the Land Cruiser, took him to another Mennonite hospital. They took another x-ray. Another set of doctors confirmed, yes, it's tuberculosis, and no, we will not treat him. And so um, for the first time in my time in Paraguay, I, I kind of pushed a little bit as, as a Westerner and said, listen, we are not taking him back to the village. I don't think he's got another trip like this in him. And so that doctor called another doctor who called another doctor, and we actually got an opening for him at an indigenous hospital in Asuncion. So we made the three, four-hour drive over to Asuncion and took him to the hospital. They kept him for one night and then moved him right away to the, the premier um, um, pulmonary infectious disease hospital. That is him at the premier pulmonary infectious disease hospital in Paraguay um, recuperating um, Praise God, we've got news since we've been back that he is still recovering. Um, it was supposed to be a one-month course of treatment. After about two months, they needed beds for coronavirus, so they kicked him out and put him on a bus. But um, they sent him with medicine, and he's walking now and eating. So we're really, really pleased with that. The day after I dropped him off at Asuncion at the hospital, I went back to Cabo Paso, and I went to the house of Clemente, and I said, hey, do you have, first, here's what's going on with your son. And he was really pleased. And I said, do you have time for me to tell you about Nyandejara, about Jesus? Um, and he said, yeah, sure, I'd be happy to have that conversation. So we sat, this building is called the Opu. In, um, in Bula culture, that is where all of their religious ceremonies take place. There are no windows, there's one door, there's a fire inside, it's very smoky and dark. Clemente is the, the shaman, the Opu Gua, the one who works in the Opu. And... Um, and we sat in front of that building there, and we talked about the, um, God, uh, how he created the world, how we sinned, how there was the need for blood sacrifice, about the idea of Abraham and Isaac and sacrificing a son, and, uh, being asked to sacrifice a son, all the way through Christ and how he came and paid the price. 
Uh, and it was good, blessed time. I feel like I, in that moment I had more Guadani than I've ever had in my life. God was really good there. Um, and then we finished our conversation and I asked him, so what do you think? And he kind of leaned back in his chair and smiled and he said, which means I have a little bit of a conflict, Mark, because, because he's the witch doctor. So, so this is his whole this is his whole income, his whole livelihood. And so, um, so we, never, we never were able to see him except yet, but I'm telling you that I believe that he is the key to Cavajupasso, he and his family. I think um, he's, the fact that he was willing to listen and hear about Christ and not reject it outright is a really significant move. Um, there's a lot of work yet to be done in Cavajupasso. This is just an example of some of the bridges that Alcides and I drove across every day. This, the, the main bridge there, um, was the main bridge between Cabajupaso and the next community over. The smaller bridge was one of the first bridges where I really had to stop and pray before I drove over it with my Land Cruiser. <laughs> you can kind of see Alcides, who's never seen a 4x4 in his entire life, guiding me over on the other side, which didn't give me a lot of confidence. Um, one of the things that we focused on was just trying to equip LCDs. And so we worked with some supporters to get an iPad and a Bluetooth speaker. So in the upper right-hand side, you can see LCDs really proud with his iPad and his Bluetooth speaker and a, a village lady there next to him. Um, we loaded it with the Jesus film, which is a, a, a film drawn right from the Gospels um, depicting Jesus' life. It's a great way to tell the story, and it can be dubbed in any language where there's a Bible translation. And the Bible has been translated not into Guarani, but into Guarani that they can understand. And so we put that into his hands. And this picture on the top is a picture of him with a crowd of people watching the creation story from the Jesus film. And it was remarkable. I will tell you that if you open up an iPad and start a movie in Cabajupaso, you will have a crowd because you are the only game in, cho- in town. Cabajupaso <laughs> uh, has um, no water other than wells that are hand dug uh, every couple of houses. Um, no sanitation, power just on one edge of the village where they've brought a school in and, um, and every month or so uh, the power gets extended because somebody puts up a tree and just extends it by themselves just a little bit. Um, but, um, but it's a rough place to live. And Alcides, we're convinced, is the one who knows best how to talk to them about Jesus. So that's our goal, pour into him. Um, the motorcycle that you can see him with um, is is a great story of God's faithfulness. So we noticed after we had been going there and speaking with him that two, sometimes more times a week, he was walking an hour and a half one way to the next village over to talk to people about Jesus, anybody who would listen. And he asked us uh, if we would buy him a motorcycle. And we were really hesitant to do it. We didn't want to put him in a position where he would be in danger of theft or being beat up. And so uh, we kind of hedged a little bit, talked about a bicycle, which he was not very excited about. And then... I showed up to the village one day and he had, I still don't to this day know how, he had acquired an old motorcycle. And when I say old, I mean, I don't know how it ran. It had, where a headlight should have been, it had kind of a rat's nest of wires. Instead of a gas cap, it just had a bag stuffed in to keep the gas inside when he drove. And, and he was taking it, whatever it would run, to tell people about Jesus. And so with that kind of commitment, um, Jody and I talked about it and we went and spoke with the chief, the cacique, and said, um, listen, we're willing to put up three quarters of the money towards a new motorcycle if you guys can come up with one quarter so that they had some investment in it. Um, and, and a couple, oh, I don't remember how much longer, a couple weeks, a month and a half later, they came up to me with the money. And I said, where did you get this money? Well, the way it works in Cabo Paso is the chief gives you a village to, uh, gives you a field to work. 
So they each have a village where they plant corn. They field, they plant field corn. That's what they cook with. They feed their animals. But the chief had given Alcides also another two acres to clear that he could plant sesame seeds to as a cash crop. So this on the top right is the two acres of sesame that Alcides had planted. I don't know if you've seen sesame seeds. They're pretty small. And I, he taught me, uh, I helped him one day plant. And uh, after he cleared it all with a hand planter, one by one for two acres, planting sesame seeds. And then when it was ready to harvest, you cut it, you shock it up like that for it to dry. And, um, and then when it's done drying, yeah, you kind of put a tarp out and you tap it out upside down and all the seeds fall out. You sift them all out and you put it in a bunch of bags. And you don't make very much money for all of that work. But he made enough to buy the motorcycle. And, and he is, to this day, every time we, we talk with him, he's taking that motorcycle, and now he's not going to the next village over. He's going, he'll drive two hours to, to tell somebody about Jesus. And so that's been a, a way we've seen the Lord really work. Um, we also started to see a lot of needs in the village. So we thought, um, what we realized was we need, to, we need to disciple them, we need to teach them about Jesus, but we can't just stand by and watch these needs go unmet. So, for instance... When we did the medical clinic, our doctor friend said about, of the 50 people we saw, 40 of them were kids, and they almost all had diseases that were secondary to malnutrition. And so we started a vegetable garden project. So this is the chief and his wife, Cacique uh, Salvador and Eugenia, and their son, one of their sons. Um, we, we joined with them to put up some fencing, and they prepared it, and they were just getting ready to plant right there with their vegetable garden to try to give better nutrition to the kids. In the upper right is Alcides and Don Benigno. Benigno is in charge of the few cattle that the village have. The cattle are pretty raw-boned, skinny cattle. And so we tried to figure out how we could um, help that. So I ended up connecting with an agronomist out of Georgia who's got a product called Sunhemp, which is really nutritious, and it grows like a weed down there, and the cattle love it. So that was our first planting of Sunhemp. And the reports I've gotten back is that the cattle like it, and, um, and they're trying to figure out how to get more of it. Uh, we also, I told you about the medical clinic in the upper right is Samuel examining a kid who does not frankly want to be examined in that picture <laughs> um, to, to help them. We had a short-term missionary come from Switzerland who was a soccer player who wanted to do sports ministry. So we did a soccer clinic in Cabo Paso, which ended up to be a huge blessing. All these little kids came to play soccer. And at the end of it, we played the creation story from the Jesus film. And they got to hear about the true God who created the earth, not about the four gods that they worship that they're constantly in fear of. That was a really blessed day. Um, and then in March, coronavirus. So um, March 20th, we got an email from the U.S. State Department that said, if you're an American living abroad, you either need to come home right now or you need to be prepared to shelter in place indefinitely because we cannot guarantee we'll be able to get you home. So we talked with our country director. We spoke with the folks at SIM USA. We spoke with the folks at SIM International and said, what do you think? And the decision was made that it was time for us to come home. And so at 5 o'clock at night, we made that decision. Jody got online and bought us tickets for 5 o'clock the next night. We stayed up all night long packing everything we had into... This is a picture of our living room right before we left. That's everything we owned into footlockers and 50-gallon drums with a bar of soap on top of it to keep the rats out. And we loaded them into a trailer and on top of our roof rack of our Land Cruiser and we Beverly Hillbillied it all the way back to Asuncion and put all of our stuff into storage. Um, took a shower and went to the airport and got onto the airplane. That was a pretty wild time and, and came back to the United States in what was a pretty, I would say, um, unusual time. That, that's a picture taken from the, one of our flights. It's a really weird thing to be on an airplane with about two other people. Um, it was um, 
It was a really strange experience. This is a picture that, um, that means a lot to me. So that is Alcides and a bunch of village boys harvesting his sesame. And the reminder to me is that in Cabo de Paso and in all of Paraguay, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. It is a hard country to get people to come to. But as I was preparing for this talk, one thing I was also struck by is that that is true not just in Paraguay, that is true in the entire world. Um, there are not enough people to do the work of proclaiming Christ in places where he is not known. And one of the things that I've been struck by is that we've done a good job, I hope, of telling you about our story and telling you about Paraguay. We have not done as good a job about telling you about SIM. And so one of the things I wanted to do this morning was just introduce you a little bit to SIM as a part of telling you about what's next for us. So if, if you could play the video, I, I've got a two-minute video that will do a better job than I could do to tell you about what SIM does. There are so many people living and dying without ever knowing who Jesus is. We are willing to do whatever it takes to change that. For over a century, SIM has been a partner in global mission for those dedicated to crossing barriers and making a difference. The three founders of Sudan Interior Mission, now known as SIM, recognize that the task of bringing good news to hard places must be carried out in collaboration with others. The task is just too massive and significant to undertake alone. When people see SIM, they see a wide array of ministry opportunities in more than 70 countries. There are 4,000 workers in SIM laboring with others to respond to need, proclaim the gospel, and equip the church. Thousands of churches send these workers from over 65 nations and partner in ministry through strategic involvement, prayer, and financial support. SIM invites people to journey with us in pursuing God as we seek to be culturally inclusive and distinctly evangelical, weaving gospel proclamation together with addressing human need. Our long-standing and growing experience is embodied by authentic diversity and practiced prayer. As we stand on the shoulders of the obedient and daring women and men who came before us, we remember their faithfulness and we continue to press on so that one day there is no corner of the world that hasn't heard the name of Jesus. So there's a lot of numbers thrown around in there. What I want you to walk away with is that there, um, SIM is a broad organization with SIM organizations in multiple countries. SIM USA is the biggest one of those countries. SIM USA has got 700 missionaries in 70 countries all over the world. Um, and, and to give you a sense of, uh, of where they're, I'm not going to give you a breakdown of every country because we don't have the time for it and also for security reasons. But in general, here are the regions where we're at in East Africa, in North Africa, southern countries in Southern Africa, and in West Africa. We're in South America, in Central Asia, East Asia, in South Asia, Europe, the Middle East, and in the South Pacific. One of the things that we've noticed at SIM is that over the last several years, numbers have been gradually declining. So we have 
missionaries aging out of the field, and we are not backfilling them with new missionaries at a fast enough pace to keep the numbers up. Over the last year, SIM is, USA has got a new director as a part of a normal succession plan who's come in and um, has got a, a full head of steam to address this. He's put together a task force to try to bend that curve back to the north. So instead of roughly 2% decreased headcount every year, we'll have um, a 2%, God willing, or a 3% increase in headcount every year over the next two years. It's kind of our moonshot, and it's a big deal. As a part of all of that, there's been a reshuffling in SIM USA, and as a part of that reshuffling, about a month ago, they contacted Jody and I, and they asked me if I'd be willing to consider the job of director of personnel for SIM USA. And I said, no. <laughs> my heart is still back in Cavadu Paso. And my wife, always wiser than I am, said, that's not probably the most missionary response you should get. We should probably pray about it, Mark. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so we took it to the Lord and prayed about it and, and considered it. And um, I went down to Charlotte, where they're based, and interviewed for it. Um, at the same time, church, can I be honest with you and authentic? We had a hard first term. We knew it was going to be hard to take two teenagers and an adolescent and drop them into the middle of the jungle, and we were prepared for it. It was harder than, than we could have imagined, um, harder on our kids in particular. We were in Curuguatu, the only English speakers in a town of 20,000 people, the only Westerners in the entire departamento in that part of Paraguay, five hours away from the nearest teammates, and it was, it was hard. So Jody and I have been working on this process of what does it look like for our family to go back to Cabo Paso in a way that's healthy? You know, how do we not fall off the edge of the cliff as a family and still take the gospel? And I think had, um, have come up with some really good ways in which that can happen. And at the same time, then this request comes from SIM USA. And as we sit and pray over it and consider it, and if, I'm, if, I, if I take my sadness about the thought of not going back to Cabo Paso and put it to the side, I can see with clear eyes, I think, ways in which the Lord may have been preparing me for a job like this through 17 years as a trial attorney and now a hard term on the field. I think that I'm potentially uniquely positioned to do a job like this, um, even though it was not what we expected. So I have accepted that position, and I fly to Charlotte uh, after this service, to, to start that. It will be a week in Charlotte and, um, and three weeks here. And so we, we, walk, we work for them in order to stay in McBain. So you'll be seeing an, a whole lot more of us, one more busker to go around. <laughs> um, uh, but I wanted to take the time just to, um, to thank you for the ways that you have walked with us in faithfulness for the last three years and invite you to continue with us. Um, all the executive positions at SIMUSA are still active missionary positions that allows the people making decisions to be people who have done the hard work and understand it, and it allows us to keep the overhead low for the missionaries who are still out in the field. Um, when I started, I had asked you, um, how does the Lord grab a, a kid from McBain and his family and drop them in the middle of the jungle in Paraguay, praying in the shaman's house? And as Jody and I have processed it, this is what I think it looks like. I don't think it, it happens in one big thunderclap of a moment. I think it happens when the people of God listen and pray and, and look for where, places where the Lord is at work, and they say, yes, they take one small step. And then you open your eyes again, and you kind of see where the Lord might be at, and you take another small step. And it's a, it's a for us to get from Pella to Paraguay and now to this new adventure was not one big step. It was a hundred small steps. And I think we've seen that here at Rehoboth. We heard last week about how Pastor Kevin fielded a phone call, right? And he said yes, because he knew Rehoboth's heart, and he knew that that aligned with with the Lord's will. And, and I think if, if we continue to do that as a congregation, if every person here 
looks for where the Lord is at work and is open to saying yes, the kingdom grows like that and big things can happen. So um, thank you for letting me share our story and thank you for the way that you've walked with us for the last three years. Thank you so much, Mark. And um, you know, we had a great conversation earlier in the week, and um, you know, I, I can relate not to the extent I think in terms of what it meant for you and your family, but um, change and being faithful to the call means a lot of different things, and not all of them are easy and um, difficult things, um, personally, and then and then for your entire family. And so, I just want to offer up. Um, my thanks, my gratitude for you, um, Jody, um, Barrett, and Addison, and, and Emerson, too, for being faithful to his call and going through what that means. And I'm um, looking forward to uh, new and rich blessings as you serve in a new position and continue to be faithful to God's call. So I want, I want to pray for that before we um, announce offerings. So let's, let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for the call that you put on Mark and Jody's heart. Lord, for all that they considered, he talked about a hundred small steps, and there's so much that goes into discerning your leading sometimes. It can be clear, and yet there's a lot of things, oh Lord, that we need to lay before you. And I praise you for the way in which they made some initial contacts with uh, LCDs and others. Lord, for the work that was done. And we know that whenever we, we work a harvest, um, for you, you honor it, and you bring um, fruit, and you bring, Lord, results. And I praise you for that. And I pray, O oh Lord, that as they make a, a transition into a new role, um, and what that will mean for each one of the children, um, another new environment, um, Lord, new responsibilities, new calling, new things to consider. Lord, I just ask for your rich uh, and beautiful um, presence to lead and to guide, Lord, to pour out rich blessings as they strive just to be faithful as a family to who it is that you're calling them to be. Uh, I pray that will be a, another beautiful chapter in the story of their lives um, and that you'll bless them in a profound and a wonderful way. So we thank you this morning for all that you've done and all that you continue to do in the hearts and lives of Mark and Jody and the family and uh, for the relationship that we're privileged to have and to share with them. In your holy and precious name, amen.